This is The Canadian Investor, where you take control of your own portfolio and gain the confidence you need to succeed in the markets. Hosted by Braden Dennis and Simon Belanger. The Canadian Investor Podcast. How are we doing? Welcome into the show. My name is Braden Dennis. As always, joined by the fearless Simon Belanger. How are you doing, my buddy? Have you played around with OpenAI's chat GPT thing? I messed around with it all weekend. <laughs> yeah, I could tell uh, that you messed around with it, but uh, I'm I sending saw... you so many screenshots. Yeah. I was I was so annoying. Yeah, like at first I'm like, what the hell am I looking at? And then I kind of understood and I saw other people that uh, played with it. I've not had the chance just yet, but uh, definitely will at some point this week. So to start today's show, I asked the AI program this prompt, and then I will say word for word what it is here. I said, I host the Canadian Investor Podcast. Can you write me a call to action to my listeners to rate the show five stars? OpenAI said, hey there, Canadian investors. If you've been enjoying the latest episode of the Canadian Investor Podcast, we would greatly appreciate it if you took a few minutes to leave us a five-star rating on your preferred podcast platform. This will not only help us reach more investors like yourself, but it will also provide valuable feedback and we we can use to continue improving the show. Your support means the world to us. We are forever grateful for every single rating and review. Thank you for being a loyal listener and helping us grow. <laughs> Dude, at one point, yeah, yeah, yeah. At one point, this entire podcast is just going to be AI, and no one's going to know. Even our yeah, voices. I, yeah, exactly. I mean, I heard that um, there are some limitations. I, I heard another show where apparently some coders or uh, programmers were trying to use it to write code. And yeah, the code it's doing that. Yeah, but the code looked right at first glance but once they went into it there was like a bunch of errors with it so i think it's still still a word of in progress but definitely what you wrote is pretty impressive it is and what you can do is like because this is what github copilot is which is a you know github is a microsoft asset and they have invested a ton of money in open ai's project and they're tapping into that with github and if you use GitHub Copilot, so you have like a bug in your code, you can just copy and paste it and just be like, hey, can you tell me like why this isn't working? And it will literally point it out and rewrite like something that'll work instead. It like knows what you're, it's dude, I've had a couple moments just using it over the past like 48 hours where I'm just like, oh my God, I don't even know how like school teachers are going to deal with this. You can write to it and be like, can you prepare a 2000 word essay on, you know, the, the founding of Canada and it'll do it in like 30 seconds. <laughs> it's so yeah. scary, man. And it sounds gonna... good. And, and then you can be like, someone, you'd be like, but also that's too smart. Can you write it? Like I'm 12 years old. So my teacher doesn't notice and it'll go, sure. And then I'll rewrite like a 12 year old. <laughs> Yeah, I think they're gonna have to go back like uh probably you and I, right? When we went to school it was just all handwritten. So you have to mm. you had to write it. It was you, you couldn't really I mean, obviously there were still ways to cheat if you really wanted to cheat, but it was definitely harder than it is today, I'm sure. Yep. All right, let's get into it. You're kicking us off with uh some performance on year to date. Um, and inspired me to do the second segment. Then you're gonna get into Canadian banks. Uh, yeah. which is good stuff. And then I will round us off with CrowdStrike live here, just winging it because uh, I didn't write any notes for that because I'm not very smart. Let's get into the S&P 500's best and performing sectors year to date. Yeah, so I pulled some data. So I thought it was a good idea to look at what the best performing sectors were because obviously, you know, I can't believe it. You probably can't either. 2022 is almost done. And I figured, you know, it's December. Pretty good idea just to see how it like the various sectors have performed year to date. So I pulled two sets of data, the one year to date and the other one to compare it five years because it's very different. 
Um, spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! The five years is actually all green, regardless of the sector. Uh, well, there's one that's kind of flat, but let's just say it's all green. Now, the year to date, the index, and this was pilled a couple days ago, so it's probably a bit worse than that because the markets have been uh, down yesterday and today. But the S and P 500 was down 14.6 percent at the time. The Worst performing sectors in order from the worst to the least worst, let's just say the top three worst, were communication services, consumer discretionary, real estate, and I guess I'll add in technology. So they were from 33% the negative to 22% for technology. And then the rest, I would say, considering how the index has performed, let's just say they were kind of flat. Um, not quite, but they're all kind of in the uh, down in the one digits or so. And then you have the highest performing sector, which is energy, and then consumer stable, which is the only other one that's slightly ahead, like 0 0.1, uh, 10 basis points, that's it. So pretty much all the sectors are down except energy. Some are pretty close to being flat, but uh, the worst performing ones are the ones that have actually done pretty well in recent years. Uh, so it was interesting to look at that. And then when you look at the five years, the best performing is technology, which is amongst the worst performing this year. So that's always interesting. And the second best performing is the healthcare sector. So that's uh, that's pretty good because uh, it is pretty much flat this year. And in the past five years, it's actually performed quite well too. Yeah, that's an interesting one too, right? Because it's kind of a bit of a recovery play, um, like many of the things that have done well. Um, like I'm thinking of, you know, a striker or a intuitive surgical, for instance, volumes heavily picking up from elective surgeries coming back uh, for those, those healthcare names. Um, no, I, I love this data because you'll notice so much bullish sentiment here on what has worked lately, right? And the reality is, is, you just pointed that out. They actually don't have a huge correlation on the returns, even just zooming out five years. Um, because, you know, technology, one of the worst performing sectors of 2022, is by far and away the best performing uh, sector in the last five years, right? If I'm reading this data correctly. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, you're yeah, exactly. I'm not sure if the data, I'm gonna assume that the data probably does not include dividends because most of the time that's the kind of data. Um, I didn't uh, have the like I don't remember by heart whether it does or not, but yeah, technology is by far the best performing for the past five years. And you know, it's in the top four of the worst performing this year. Uh, I with 20, let's just say 23% probably with uh, yesterday or today in the negative. Yeah, and it makes me so. It make it makes me chuckle when you see victory laps or you know, long term sort of conclusions being drawn, dunking on certain investors in the short term for performance. Never get too high or too low on short term performance because it's like you see human recency bias just in full effect. Let's look at Exxon Mobil, for instance. It is up seventy percent year to date. You know, what a great stock. And sure, maybe it was probably too cheap. It was too unloved. And here it's having a monster year in 2022. While the stock market has largely been painful for many, you have this thing up 70%. But even from today's huge run-up, the stock outside of that dividend has virtually been dead money. Um you know, it's vastly underperformed on a total market return, even if you include, you know, the nice juicy dividend that you were getting back then. So um, it's just a reminder to zoom out and, uh, you know, one year, one quarter, two years, even five years just might not be a good time frame for the game that you're playing. And if if you're if you're playing a short term game, then yeah, this is relevant. But I know many of us listening aren't. Yeah, no, exactly. And I like to use this data personally, the the shorter term data, because I like to find good value. 
And I find that's really useful for that. So if you look at the sectors that are the hardest hit, that's usually where you'll be able to find some pretty good value, but with a caveat that, you know, oftentimes there are reasons why it's severely down, right? It could be an unsustainable sector and whatnot, or there could be some really poor performing companies, way worse than others in that sector. But I do like that because, you know, if you like tech and you didn't like the valuation last year, well, this clearly shows that there might be some interesting tech plays that, uh, you might want to look at because clearly tech has suffered quite a bit this year. Yeah. Your, your segment inspired me to run a a little screener from stratosphere because I was looking at it. I was like, you know, I I would love to just be able to properly back test. It would take so long, but to properly back test just really how disconnected short-term returns and business performance in those sectors can be in the short term both on the on to the upside and to the downside just how disconnected those two metrics can be of the share performance and actual fundamentals of the business so i just ran a, like a sorted by 10 billion market cap in north america i did growing revenue by more than 10% per share to throw out some like heavily diluted growth. Um, I think that that makes sense given, you know, what's happened with heavy dilution and on some of these names in the past two-ish years and down more than 30% from the high. You get the following businesses, Align Technology, SVB Financial, uh, and so these are all greater than 10 billion in market cap, by the way. So some of them I don't know, but they're not small businesses at all. Zoom Video, Meta, Evergreen Marine Corp, Netflix. I don't know how to say it. It's a cow cow. It's a, I believe it's a Korean name. Tesla, Moderna, Avantor, Rocket Companies, Amazon, Liberty, Pinterest, Viva, ServiceNow, KKR, and Nutrien. And so a lot of these are like big names that you will know and have still grown, you know, well in excess of the market average on the top line per share. And you're seeing huge, heavy drawdowns. So, you know, do your own due diligence, of course. But this is this is the time to start thinking about which well, all the time is the time to think about it, but more than ever now is just which companies are doing extremely well from a fundamentals perspective, continuing to get it done. The story has not changed. I'm thinking of like an Amazon is a perfect example of this. And you know, you're getting much better value on shares today than you were, you know, one year ago, year and a half ago. Uh, so this should this should make people excited, um, especially when you see m- large market drawdowns. This this is what should make investors extremely optimistic in terms of a forward return opportunity. Yeah, no, I definitely agree there, and I'll just add my two cents here, not specific to these companies, but. Uh, even personally, I've been buying a lot of technology and real estate stocks and some communication stocks in the past six months. And those are three three of the worst hit sectors so far this year. Obviously, I'm, I'm picking the companies that I'm you know choosing. And I know they could very well be bumpy for the next year or two for those sectors. I'm well aware, especially real estate with interest rates being high. But mm-hmm. because I have a long-term horizon, I think there's some great opportunities in those sectors personally, but other sectors as well. All right, let's get into... The Mr. Belanger Canadian Banks Roundup. Um, yeah, what do, what do we got on the slate here? Yes, uh, let's let's do it. So the Canadian banks are saving the days in terms of earning uh, because there's not much else going on unless uh, you like you know, those uh, venture venture TSX mining stocks. I feel like they're reporting all the time, but um, I won't do all the banks here. I wanted I, I triple to... levered my entire portfolio <laughs> into those names you're talking about, by the way. 
Yeah. So, I mean, I decided to do a mix here. So I decided to do the largest Canadian banks of the, the big banks, obviously, the bank with the most exposure to mortgages as a percentage of its loan portfolio and the smallest of the Canadian banks. So I wanted to do kind of a mix here just because uh, I think it'll provide a pretty good picture. So the largest, obviously, I alluded to its Royal Bank, ticker IRY list dual listed so they're q4 and full year results but i'll really focus on q4 because you know the environment for banks has changed dramatically from the start of the year from q1 to q4 and i think that's really important when people are looking at year over year numbers uh just to keep that in mind because i think what the interest rates have gone up 350 basis points since the start of the year and probably going to get another 25 to 50 uh tomorrow so keep that in mind because when you're comparing year to year number now First thing, good news, Royal Bank announced a 3% increase to their dividend. Revenues were up 1.5% year over year and 3.5% on a sequential basis. I'll do both for Royal Bank here. Net income was essentially flat and up 8.5% on a sequential basis, flat year over year. They added $381 million to provision for credit losses versus $340 million last quarter. Now, as a side note, last year they had released 227 million worth of provision for credit losses that they had put prior to the pandemic. So that's a swing of $600 million. So that's very telling. Um, the amounts are reasonable considering the size of Royal Bank, but it definitely shows a shift here in uh, their planning for the worst. In terms of segments, uh, it what generated net income, personal and commercial banking was up 5% year over year to 2.1 billion. I uh, think I, I forgot a word here. I think it's wealth management. So I put, <laughs> I'm reading my notes. I'm like, oh boy, it doesn't make sense. So um, so wealth management was up 47% to 822 million year over year again. Insurance was flat at 268 million. Investor and treasury services were flat at 110 million year over year. And capital market segment was down 33%. To 607, yeah, 617 million year over year, but it was up on a sequential basis. Um, clearly, obviously, uh, there has been, you know, a lot less action on the capital market. So that's normal to see that uh, downward trend year over year. Now, what's interesting here is the net interest margin was 1.56%, which is a key metric for the banks. Essentially, it's a difference between what they pay you if you deposit money and what they loan out at a higher rate. So that's spread in between. That's how they make a lot of their money. Obviously, there are fees as well. But when you're talking about savings and loans, that's something you want to look at. And it was up 13 basis points year over year and four basis points on a sequential basis. So higher interest rates will do that for the most part. They will allow banks to have a higher interest net interest margin. The important thing is you want to make sure that it is higher, but also you're not losing too money on too much money on bad loans. And the last thing I'll mention for Royal Bank is their CT1 ratio has been trending down to 12.6%. It's actually down 110 basis points from last year and down 50 basis points from the previous quarter. And it's a little something I found on their earnings release. So in Q2 of this year, they had these, you know, on the press release, they have these squares that talk about like the highlights, right? So the CT1 ratio was 13.2% in Q2. And what they wrote was robust capital levels of 40 basis point year over year. Now this quarter, CT1 ratio 12.6% well above regulatory requirements. So it's just kind of funny the language they're using. It's almost like they're trying to make sure that investors don't panic by seeing a much lower CT1 ratio. And the CT1 ratio is just basically, it's, um, it's a way to assess how well capitalized a bank is in relation to um, how uh, their assets in terms of the risk associated with their assets. This is a uh, good little roundup, touch on the CET one, uh, the net interest margins. Those are the ones that typically I'm looking at. I, you know, it's funny because you have sequential growth on the cap markets, which 
is exactly you know what we would expect because uh, yeah. it bounced bounced a little bit. Um, yeah, overall, what do you think? I think um, it's it's okay. I think uh, the next one is much better. The next bank I'll talk about, Royal Bank, I would say it's okay. I mean, it's definitely not great. It's not bad. Uh, there's some good and bad there. A solid dividend B. increase. Yeah, I would say like a C plus, B minus around there. <laughs> okay, all right, all right. Just get yeah. just a quick vibe check. Um, I mean, it's funny because the Canadian banks like. We historically, they catch so much attention uh, from Canadian news outlets as they should, right? They're the, the the backbone of this economy, pretty much. You know, we got like financials and materials and Shopify, um, <laughs> and it catches so much attention. And so, I the news cycle will always perennially overshoot and undershoot the the perceived results from any of these Canadian big banks and especially a behemoth like RBC. And so, you know, the whole time Canadian bank investors who have literally blocked out all the news, never cared, have made stupid sons, stupid sums of money compounded and received, you know, four plus juicy percent dividend yield the whole, the whole time. And so I tend to just, you know, when they're coming out with maybe only a C plus, I'm like, okay, it, 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 that's fine. You know, it's going to, it's going to continue to be just fine. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I mean, the banks are not going under anytime soon. Right. But considering to what we saw in the last couple of years, I think it's, you know, it's okay, but you'll understand why I'm saying that because national bank, I think, they had a much better uh, quarter here. And just like Royal Bank, they increased their dividend, but they increased theirs by 5%. Revenues were up. Yeah, revenues were up 7% year over year. And for those not aware, National Bank is the smallest of the big banks in Canada. Um, Net income was up 11% year over year, which is impressive. Royal Bank, if we uh, remember that I just talked about, it was flat. They added 32 million to provisions for credit losses. But again, it's a much smaller bank than Royal Bank. So let's take that into account here. The net interest margin was 2.09%, which was up eight basis point year over year and much higher than Royal Bank, might I add. Segments net income looked like this. Wealth management was up 10% to 181 million. Financial markets was up 12% to 280 million. U.S. specialty finance and international was down 22% to 125 million. Don't ask me what it is, but <laughs> that's one of their segments. Their <laughs> other, their other segment in air quotes had a net loss of 95 million versus a net loss of 38 million last year. So these are just probably smaller segments that they're not too noteworthy. And their CT1 ratio was 12.8%, a 40 basis point increase compared to last year. So that's why I'm saying like Royal Bank was kind of lukewarm. I think National Bank, especially given the current macroeconomic climate, um, I think it's a pretty impressive uh, quarter for them without being a bank expert, just comparing to a World Bank here. This is the one that continues to kind of impress. And there's been a couple of banks, National definitely comes to mind, where it's like, not only do they impress, but they just keep accelerating their ability to impress over time. And I think National kind of fits that category from the from the metrics and looking back it didn't des- it's never deserved to be trading at a discount on a earnings multiple to the other ones it's never really made a lot of sense to me now am i going to act on that no i historically don't own banks but um it's i feel like it's finally getting uh, its moment at least in the circles i hang around yeah, yeah, it seems to be trading to at a, a definitely higher multiple than some of the other banks. I think it's trading similar. I don't have the multiples in front of me, but I think it's pretty similar to Royal Bank. Um, and clearly their dividend yield is way, 
way less than uh, CIBC or Bank of Nova Scotia. So usually, you know, you have those higher yields are interesting, sure, but oftentimes it's a symptom of something that's not going well with uh, the, the company itself. Let's take a quick moment to break up the earnings reports on banks before you continue and talk about something that's kind of related um, in this front. And that is the fact that Equifax Canada said that there's an increase in borrowers, which has pushed total consumer debt to $2.36 trillion in Q3, which is up 7.3% from last year, um, which is interesting because you had mortgage volumes actually decline. Um, and so you had a big increase of non-mortgage debt rising to 21,183 per person, uh, which is the highest level since the second quarter of 2020 and um, seeing lots of strain on auto loans and particularly credit cards, which is not overly surprising, especially when we saw no wonder, you know, Visa MasterCard coming with their Q3 and in their Q, all the, all the Qs lately just saying, hey, we're not seeing any consumer issues uh, with consumer confidence in spending. Um, you know, credit card spending was up 17.3% from last year in Canada to an all-time high for the period. So a quick reminder here, though, that Visa and MasterCard do not lend money. The issuing banks do. Uh, you know, I always got to throw that in there. Um but it's it's fascinating seeing this data, and it's obviously showing some soft spots um, and maybe some warning signs of what's to come because consumers have been making, here's a quote from Equifax, consumers have been making strong payments, but now we're seeing a shift in behavior, especially for credit card resolve, revolvers. And all that means is just people who normally carry a balance on their credit card. So they carry credit card debt, don't pay it off in full each month. Um, and so that's rapidly increasing. Um, what do you make of this? I mean, I'm not surprised uh, for a variety. I think there's many factors at play here. Also, just people just using plastic more than ever uh, would be one of the catalysts as well weaker economy. And then now we're heading into a holiday period where people are going to be tapping that plastic card more than ever too. Yeah. I mean, I think it's um, personally, I think it's a bit scary because I yeah. think it's uh, probably, you know, we saw the economic numbers come out in the past couple months and they've been better than expected, whether it's Canada or the U S and I don't know what the metrics are for the U S here, but for Canada, definitely better than expected. And then you're seeing these figures come out. It's It feels like some people are spending now and the economy is kind of staying afloat, but you know something's going to give eventually. So I feel like it may be a bit of a rougher 2023 compared to 2022. Um, that's kind of the feeling I get, uh, an increase in 7.3%. It's pretty scary considering the amount of debt we already have in Canada. Um, so that's kind of my reaction. I don't want to sound the alarm like really like too much either. But um, personally, I think it's inevitable that we'll see very slow growth next year, at least from the consumer part, uh, because people will have to pay out pay off that debt, you know, one way or another. And hopefully the banks have good uh, risk management because, you know, it could be a bit tricky for them. Those loan loss provisions, they may have to increase next year if you have consumers that are not paying their debt. And the last thing I'll add is, you know, we don't give financial advice, but uh, I will go ahead and provide one piece of advice to anyone who has money on their credit card and keeps it on month over month. You should not be investing. You should be paying off your credit card because you're paying what is it now? Like 20%, 19.9%, whatever it is. At the, at the uh, minimum. At the minimum, exactly. So, um, you know, you can't be risking money in the stock market if you have money that you're paying that kind of interest every month. Get that sorted out and then you can think about investing. Very good call out uh, because, yeah, there's, there's, there's virtually no point of having 
money in equities if you can pay down debt that's serving that kind of interest rate, right? Like <laughs> we're talking about returns you will not easily find in the market. No. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so yes, do that. No one, I, I hope like personal finance wise, the goal should be that no one carries uh, a credit card balance and it can happen. There's an emergency. I get it. And then that will immediately personal finance 101 become the most important thing you can do is make sure that you get that down to zero and not carry a balance every month. Like for me, I have a thing that I just auto pay the balance on my credit card. And I always use my credit card for as many transactions as I, transactions as I possibly can, because I want to rack up those points, baby. And yeah. uh, may potential cash back um, and build credit if you need it. So there's so many pros. I, I, I never have once agreed with the thought of, yeah, you shouldn't use a credit card. You don't, you don't need it. That's, that's silliness. You should. It's just, you got to make sure it's paid off or else yikes we're talking about yeah. supreme interest rates yeah and i think the last thing i'll add here is um i heard somewhere else too that the uh, those buy now pay laters they are seeing a lot of growth year over year like i think mm. i i heard some figures like it's up 60 70 percent year over year um don't quote me exactly on that but i know it's way way up so that's another kind of trend in the same direction here um again like you said um hopefully we don't have people that are carrying over balances for a long time emergencies do happen but um yeah something to tackle if you do have a large balance now see that's this is what makes economic indicators impossibly perennially difficult because you look at that data point and that sounds like doomsday type growth of people <laughs> paying in that fashion of buy now, pay later to buy a new iPhone, right? Like that seems extremely like doomsday type metric. But then you got to wonder, is that just because there's such an increase in distribution and all these e-commerce platforms offering it? Like, how do you extrapolate and make sense of that data? And so um, it's a, uh, it's, it's a, this is the way I think about it is every time you hear a piece of data, especially in financial news where they love selling bad news, um, think about all of the inputs into that number, right? Uh, it's not to say it's not scary. It's just to say that there's so many inputs into all these metrics and most financial news sites don't want to explain why it might not be bad because bad, bad sells clicks in this economy, my man. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. No, right. exactly. And the best macroeconomists for indicators I've heard—they're not on those main sites. They're usually, yeah, yeah usually you know they're very specialized podcasts or. Um, you know, they'll have some reports that oftentimes you have to pay for. But what I found interesting is oftentimes what they'll do is they'll take a huge basket of indicators. And what they'll try to do is try to forecast where it's going and try to see if there's a large amount of those indicators that are, you know, suggesting one thesis or another. But they'll be oftentimes straightforward saying, OK, they'll go in probabilities, but they will never for sure say it will happen. So those are the ones that I think are worth listening to, not the headline grabbers. Yeah, exactly. Uh, all right, let's move on to- The last CIBC. bank. Yep. Yeah, CIBC. So I did say I wanted to talk about the largest, uh, well, the bank has the most exposure in terms of their total loan portfolio to mortgages. And that bank is CIBC. I think it's been like that for quite some time too. So revenues were up 6% to 5.4 billion. Net income was down 18% to 1.2 billion. Net interest margin was down eight basis point to 1.33%. So if we if you were remembering what I talked about, Royal and National Bank, their net interest margin was actually up, which you tend to see in a rising rate environment. So that's a that's a big warning sign for anyone who wants to invest in CIBC here. That's a key metric that's not great for them. 
provision for credit losses were 436 million up 4.5 times since last year and 80% versus the previous quarter and keep in mind CIBC is a smaller bank than Royal Bank and they add more provision <laughs> for credit losses here mm. ct 1 ratio was down 70 basis point to 11.7% year over year and now there's segments in terms of net income, Canadian personal banking and business banking was down 21% to 471 million. Canadian commercial bank and wealth management up 6% to 469 million. US commercial bank and wealth management down 37% to 161 million and capital markets were flat at 378 million. CIBC now has 57% of its total loan portfolio and mortgages, which it's just insane. If you ask me, like I would not touch CIBC with a 10 foot pole and they announced a 2.5% dividend increase, which again, it's beyond me. I don't know why they're announcing a dividend increase when they should focus on, you know, getting everything under control. I'm not trying to sound the alarm here, but CIBC has so much exposure to mortgages that I think, you know, that should be their priority to really mitigate that over you know, giving a token increase of 2.5%. Yeah, this is one of those things where the motivations for capital allocations for, say, a decision maker at CIBC to hike the dividend is just not aligned with long-term success. Um, and I've been a, I've been very consistent about warning dividend investors of that exact thing where they're going to get removed from some list if they don't hike it you know <laughs> they're going to be they're going to be out of some index if they don't um and so those things bother me as a, a prospective shareholder well not of CIBC I'm not but those things no. would bother <laughs> me <laughs> um given the fact that those incentives don't align with long term results uh, especially in just good capital allocation decisions, it's only two and a half percent, whatever. And like you said, there's no reason to sound the alarm bell, but we're talking about serious exposure to Canadian housing. Yeah, yeah exactly. And I'm not, look, it could very well be that, you know, things, the real estate market doesn't impact their mortgage uh, loan portfolio too badly, you know, three, four years down the line, hindsight is 2020. But at the same time, wouldn't you want to be on the side of caution? Just plan for the worst case scenario. Like, look, they still have a good CT1 ratio, and I'm sure they're still well capitalized. But given the exposure, I don't know. To me, it would just be plan for the worst. And if the worst doesn't come true a few years down the line, then you reward shareholders then with a huge dividend increase if you need to. So that's, I don't know, that's the way I would approach it. Yeah. I tend to agree. No, that's good stuff. All right, should we move on to CrowdStrike? Yeah, yeah, the opposite of banking. <laughs> yeah, the opposite of banking. Um, yeah, you wouldn't see it. <laughs> Put it this way, if any of the stocks you just mentioned dropped 18% after hours on an earnings report, that would be very concerning. That's that's kidsy Swiss style. Yeah, much. yeah, exactly. Yeah, Bear Stern, Bear Stearns vibes. Uh, 2008 all over again. If those names were falling as much as CrowdStrike did on their earnings report late last week. Now, this is funny, right? And before I get into the results, I just want to talk about this because I was just on a podcast, like I was being interviewed, and they're like. What, like, why did tech stocks get hammered so much? And, and what is the risk of overpaying? And I, I put it this way, which was the risk of overpaying and the risk for paying extremely high multiples is that the margin for error from the management team or the business to execute just gets thinner and thinner and thinner and thinner, even if. The business is executing extremely well uh, in a very attractive sector like cybersecurity, building, I think, what is it, a very important network effect. Uh, category leader, them and Microsoft and cyber, in my opinion. I, I think those are the two, the two category leaders. There's Sentinel-1 and Zscaler as well and, and the whole whack load of other 
uh, cybersecurity platforms as well. But we're talking about, you know, category leaders here. And you see something drop almost 20% of its value after hours after the earnings release because we have like weak-ish guidance and an environment that punishes companies that are not gap profitable. Um, it is just like a really easy way to think about the current environment on how these software names can get absolutely walloped uh, just in a very short period of time. And so that's the risk of overpaying is that you will get these reports come out and the stock is trading at a multiple that is priced for perfection. And you get, you know, here's, Simon, here's perfect on the right side. Here's good on the left side. And then beyond good is just a bunch of junk companies. If you're priced for perfection and you are not over here, you're even slightly in the great category, you're you're going to get smoked in the short term. Um, but does that matter? I guess is, is the question. If you're holding CrowdStrike, I don't think you're holding it for, you know, three months to try to flip it for something later. You're hoping that CrowdStrike turns into a gigantic category leader in cybersecurity. And so um, I've been waiting for this name to get a little cheaper and it, it has now flown up to a segment on stocks on our watch list because it's still not cheap, but it's it's getting further away from price to perfection. Um, do you agree with that kind of narrative and the way I, the way I answered that question? Yeah, no, I think that's a, that's a great point. And look, I mean, sometimes even in <laughs> like last year, even if management executes like flawlessly and the expectations come in, uh, some stocks last year, some companies were just, the valuations were just insane, right? So even if yeah. management executed, it's basically impossible to, to grow in that valuation at least you know not for the next few years but CrowdStrike was one of them that seemed to you know be bucking the trend it was still down but not as down as other highly valued growth stocks and uh, I guess yeah like you just said that margin you know when you're paying a pretty high multiple it's just not there's not much of a margin and even though CrowdStrike is still you know, executing very well. It's not executing perfectly. So the market, uh, you know, does what it does and punished it uh, in the current environment. Yeah, that's right. And especially if you're not gap profitable, right? <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. Do you know uh, if they're free cash flow positive? They are. Or? They they are. are okay. Yeah. Yes, they are. They, they must do they... a lot of stock-based compensation. I'm assuming. That's right. That's yeah. right. Okay. And so and another theme of something that the market has turned uh, on is a lot of dilution and rightfully so. Yeah. I, I, you know what I mean? Um, so yeah, there, there's, there's multiple ways to go about it. But if I look at, uh, if I look at the results here on their filings, they, how much free cash flow did they produce in the quarter? And of course this is not a gap metric, but we are talking about 243 million in uh, cash flow from operations and 174 million of free cash flow. Now, yeah, okay. how how much of it is of, of it is SBC? Um, yeah, I'd have to I'd have to look more into that. And so, I think those are valid questions, right? Like, this is what I was talking about before. It's like companies are actually growing revenue per share, or you know, free cash flow per share. Because at the end of the day, what drives shareholder returns? It's free cash flow per share in a long view. So let's get to the earnings. Uh, the top line sales was up 53% year over year. Annual recurring revenue uh, up on that same metric, but 54%, so slightly higher. But that gives you an idea of ARR is equal to revenue. This is a recurring revenue business to $2.34 billion in annual recurring run rate. So we're talking about very significant scale here. Gross margins near 80% at 78 now. Um, they added 1,460 net new subscribers in the in the quarter, which brings them to over 21,000 uh, large customer accounts. So we're talking about big enterprises. We're not talking about like, you know, you and I need cybersecurity for, for the pod here. 
Uh, CrowdStrike subscription customers now they 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 pulled this out, which I think is interesting. Each quarter, since it's modular, you can like tack on more and more services, which is great because then you're going to find actual net expansion in the in the revenue from existing customers. But they have now gone from like averaging three services to people are typically getting five, six or seven subscriptions, uh, part of the CrowdStrike uh, product offering. So they're tagging on adjacent services within CrowdStrike because, I mean, it's already in that ecosystem. If you need, if you have that type of cyber and you want something else, you want to enhance your protection, uh, it just makes sense to go to an adjacent product within CrowdStrike. So we're seeing a lot of net expansion of the existing customer set. Um, now looking forward, I mean, the guidance was weak ish, like it's so stupid. Like, you know, the the guidance is like pretty solid, I think in a vacuum. And then it's like, you know, a few million less on the top line than analysts had pegged. Like who cares, right? Like long-term shareholders shouldn't care when we're talking about the scale of a two and a half billion dollar run rate, right? Like it's, it's not significant, that is extrapolated or multiplied when you're trading at a nosebleed multiple and um, you're just priced to perfection. Like, you know, you get any little, any little budge in ex- expectations or guidance and uh, the stock goes spiraling down. Now, in a vacuum, thinking like a business owner, if I could not mark to mark the value of this stock on a daily basis and see how the market react. I look at this and I go execution as per usual. Um, And so I'm going to continue to think like that when I'm analyzing these businesses is what are the things that matter? What makes it tick? How, what are the margin profiles like? What is ARR ticking up? Is it still jumping by like 50% year over year? Yes. Um, is it still a structurally incredibly important business that they're building in cybersecurity? Yes. And so uh, I don't own a position, but maybe I'm going to get a chance at some point to own, a, I think, a category leader. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you know this name better than I do. Uh, but uh, from what I've heard for a lot of you know, smarter people than me in this space, it tends to be the name that comes over and over in terms of the the best kind of service over there when it comes to cybersecurity. So I think it's a, it's an interesting name. And I was uh, just looking it up. They generated a bit less than half a billion in free cash flow last year. And yep. it looks like they're probably on track to do something similar this year. So what that tells me, yes, they're not profitable on a gap basis, but that the business is sustainable, assuming that they can continue that growth rate and that kind of leadership spot in the cybersecurity space. We are just a few days away, Simon, from Brookfield's spinoff of the asset management business. We are just a again? few days away. I think it's December 9th. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, it's December probably 9th. too late to buy the stock now for sure because, uh, you know, by the time it gets settled, right? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I I added to my position in time and quite happy about it because I think that there's some short-term unlocking. So for those who don't know, I and mean, this is coming out, when will this episode drop, Simon? It's uh, on the 8th? Thursday. Yeah, yeah on the 8th. Yeah, yeah. On the, in, in a day. So on the 9th of December at market close, which is a Friday, they will spin out Brookfield asset management which will trade under bam so bam will trade as the asset management spin-off the parent company will get a new ticker ticker bn um and so ticker bn will keep a 75 percent interest in brookfield asset management the spin-off corp am i explaining that clearly yeah. enough for the people? Yeah, I think so. We've talked okay. about it before too, yeah. so yeah. 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 So like the Coles notes are if you if you if you haven't heard the segment of where we talked about this, Brookfield Asset Management, the business BAM 
is spinning out the asset management part of the business because they also own renewable energy infrastructure and real estate underneath the umbrella. That umbrella will become ticker BN. And uh, I've been asked a couple of times now what I'm going to do when the split happens. And the answer I have is absolutely nothing for at least several quarters. I don't think you need to make any decisions on on this kind of stuff right away. Yeah, no, same for me. Uh, I don't own a lot of BAM, but uh, not planning to to touch the the new entity and the the mothership either. I have a feeling like you know a couple quarters are going to go by, and the market, like you know, the, Bruce is going to get what he was looking for, which is like people realizing that that's a hell of a business. Because we're talking about how much in fee-bearing capital. Let me look on Stratosphere. We are talking about $407 billion in fee-bearing capital at the end of Q3 and $762 billion in assets under management in renewables, infrastructure, real estate, and, and others. So tremendous scale and operating them. Um, I, I don't know why I don't own more, honestly. I should ask, I ask myself that too often. Yeah, no, I don't have have much to say. Sorry, I have a crying baby in the background. So, (laughs) bless your soul. How's she doing? She doing good? Doing good. Um, Good. For a baby that's a bit more than three months, uh, she's doing pretty good. But uh, she always gets a bit fussy around this time of day. So, uh, a couple more weeks, and uh, I'll be good to go. Probably in the new year for sure. At the latest, I'll have my. uh, my new uh, recording studio, so I uh, will not have to worry about the the baby crying or the dog nice. barking. Yeah, are you gonna get some cool like uh, you know neon lights? We need like uh, you know like the Joe Rogan experience neon light behind you. We need like a big TCI podcast. Maybe one. if I can fit it. It's not a big room. <laughs> I'll just say that. <laughs> is it uh, is it a glorified pod podcast closet in the basement? Pretty much. No, no, I mean, it's bigger than closet. <laughs> it would be a, a walk-in closet, I would say. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fancy, fancy walk-in yeah. closet. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool, cool. Thanks so much for listening to the pod, everyone. We really appreciate you. Um, as, as mentioned by the top of the show here, the AI is telling you to rate the show five stars. I'm not saying that. I'm talking about smart artificial intelligence telling y'all to... R- rate the show five stars and uh, that it helps us grow. So I appreciate everyone who does that. And uh, if you have not yet, I don't know why, but if you have not yet checked out the new Stratosphere, it is electric and very easy to use. It's fast. It's clean. It looks amazing. And, you know, I was just talking about these companies. And when I'm in, typed in CRWD for CrowdStrike, I can actually pull the press release right from the filings so that I can see exactly the metrics that you need um, right up there. So you don't have to dig around on multiple investor relations site. It stays right inside the app. It is a beautiful thing. We will see you in a few days. Take care. Bye-bye. The Canadian Investor Podcast should not be taken as investment or financial advice. Braden and Simone may own securities or assets mentioned on this podcast. Always make sure to do your own research and due diligence before making investment or financial decisions.